blast you there with the volume. We're in Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 5. And we're going to cover through the rest of that chapter. I know we already included some of these verses in last week's sermon, but there are important elements of the chapter that we skipped over last week. And so we did ask the question when we were together, what is true belief? And that question sent us to another question, which was how do we know that our belief is sincere, that it's genuine? And today we're going to ask different questions such as what specific things or types of things must I believe? And we'll also take a look at some of the interesting and and sometimes honestly confusing statements that that are here in this chapter. So would you stand as we read God's word together, Romans 10, starting with verse 5. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Father, as we think upon these words and and try to understand what they mean, and uh, Father, I just ask that you would help pull us together in, in terms of our attention, in terms of our focus, that we would look at your word, that we would let it uh, impact us today, that we would listen for the principles, or help us understand. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are a lot of quotes in this section of Romans. And Paul is pulling together several different passages from the Old Testament in order to make his point. And by the time we finish together today, you will understand why these quotes are so important to Paul's argument. And you'll be ready for chapter 11. But first, I want to ask and answer this question. What must I believe. What must I believe? 
And we saw last week how belief isn't just being convinced of something being more likely true than not. Rather, belief, true belief, is a conviction that is so strong that even in the face of persecution, it results in continued obedience and perseverance and trust and hope. But when it comes to salvation, what is this conviction in? What is the content of our belief? Well, when we ask that question, we're naturally wondering whether we need to know or understand certain things. Do we, do we need, for example, to fully understand the Trinity? Do we need to know how salvation takes place or be able to explain fully the relationship of evil to good? What does Paul say here in, in verses 9 and 10? He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And there are two specific items in these verses that faith confesses and believes. Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? To confess him as Lord is to acknowledge that he shares the same name, the same nature, the same holiness, the same authority, power, majesty, eternity of the one and only true God. It is to acknowledge that we are accountable to him and that we must answer to him. But you say, but couldn't Lord, the title, just mean something like master or king? Not for Paul. Take a look at this passage from, uh, where is it here? There you go, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now being the source and maintenance of all things that exist is not the quality of just an earthly king or master. That's the quality of God. And, and Paul is attributing that to Christ when he says, this is one Lord, Jesus Christ, who is this, through whom, all are, through whom are all things, that reminds us of Colossians 1, through whom we exist. And it's a humbling and uncomfortable thought for some that our very breath depends upon the Lord Jesus' permission and, and power, Right? But it was also humbling and uncomfortable for the Israelites to accept those same truths, that they were not self-sufficient, but rather accountable to God and completely reliant on his grace. And that's the point of the next verses. Look at those closely with me for a second, where we read Moses writes about this righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, and that is the word of faith that we proclaim. What in the world does that mean? Did you read that and, and ask that question? Well, Paul is quoting here from two parts of Deuteronomy. And it's important that we understand why. First, when Paul writes, do not say in your heart, it's as if, 
Wow, that's a loaded phrase because that is an echo specifically of Moses in Deuteronomy 9.4 where Moses had said, do not say in your heart after the Lord has thrust them out before you that it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So what Moses is saying is this. Don't think God has redeemed you from Egypt because of your righteousness. Don't say that in your heart. His emphasis is that their redemption is completely based upon the grace of God. And then next, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. And there we read, For this commandment that I command you today, is it's not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. And I want you to to, to stop for a second and, and hear what he's saying. It's not too hard for you, and it's not too far off from you. Okay, It's right here. He says, it's not in heaven. That's far away, right? It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up into heaven and bring it down for us? That we may hear it and do it. And it's not beyond the sea far away that you should say who will go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. That's what Moses is saying. So having reminded the Israelites as we saw in Deuteronomy 9 that their salvation for Egypt was based upon God's grace and not their own righteousness Moses implies a temptation they will face is to say God's expectations are too difficult. They're too tough. And one of the biggest excuses they would make is to say, I don't know what those expectations are. And that's what is meant where Moses says, you know, essentially God's expectations, his principles, friends, are not far away from you. They're not in heaven. You don't have to go up to get them. They're not in some place across the sea, the furthest that you could imagine. No, God has given you his word. And it is near you in your mouth and in your heart. He has revealed it to you. He has given you everything that you need. That's what Moses is saying. Now take those thoughts, because Paul is quoting them. Take those thoughts Put them back into Romans 10. And like Moses, Paul is saying, God has given you his word, and salvation is entirely dependent upon his grace, not your righteousness. And just as God once brought his word near to the people through the law given at Mount Sinai, so he has sent his word, Jesus Christ. No person can give the excuse that they don't know what God expects or that they can't do it or that it's too tough for them. Why? He says you don't have to go up into heaven and bring Jesus back down. He already came. You don't need to bring Jesus up. See how Paul's taking that idea of going beyond the sea. He he kind of turns it vertical now. He says, you don't need to bring up Jesus from the dead. It's kind of clever the way he does this. And he says, to tell you what to do, he's already risen. 
you have everything that you need. He is active in your life. He is advocating for you. I mean, he's not saying it here in Romans 10, but think about all the other things that he says in all of his other letters. What is Jesus doing right at this moment? Interceding for you, advocating for you. Will he not in his life, Paul says what, earlier in the cha- uh, Romans, right? Will he not in his life, if he gave his life for you, will he not living even more give himself for you? So that's the point. No more excuse making. Jesus has already come down from heaven and in the resurrection he has already risen from the dead. So why say these things? Well, perhaps we can see how it connects to the issue about what we are to believe because Moses rebuked the Israelites for unbelief when they thought that part of their salvation was based upon their own righteousness and when they failed to recognize that God had graciously given them everything that they needed for living as his people. Similarly, when we acknowledge we are being faithful when we acknowledge that our salvation completely dependent upon God and that he has given everything to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of heaven. And that's, that's part of why we say Jesus is Lord. That's what is embodied in that. He is the incarnate word. And he is the risen Savior, raised from the dead. And that's brought out in that confession. And in totality, what we are saying is that Jesus is God's fully sufficient, gracious provision for our salvation. That's what those words mean. We need nothing else, and we are without excuse if we think that we save ourselves or that we're missing something. Do you see how that, I mean, those words are simple. Jesus is Lord, and God raised him from the dead, but that's what's behind those words. Now, some of you may ask a natural question, how do I know if I really believe that, though? How do I know if I really believe those two things, that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead? And that's where last week's sermon comes in. You know by the fruit of your life whether you have a true, sincere belief or a false belief. But some others of you may be asking a a different but related question, and that is, what if I don't really understand what it means to say Jesus is Lord? Those are lofty concepts. What if I can't fully conceive of a dead person resurrecting from the grave? Some of the Bible is confusing to me. And at the core of that question is whether or not you must have a right kind of understanding with regard to your belief. And for that, I would just point you to some of these types of passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What's Paul saying here? He says that knowledge, and that was alluded to earlier, knowledge by itself simply makes a person arrogant. It's the same type of arrogant knowledge that Paul warns the church about in Romans when he tells just a a chapter later, tells them that they should not be arrogant over the Israelites because they, the Gentiles, understand something that the Israelites do not. 
Even later in Romans 14, Paul will talk about those who have a strong knowledge of God, but they are not to quarrel over opinions with those who have a weak knowledge of God. And what all of that suggests is that the most important thing about your belief is that you are motivated to acknowledge your need for grace, even if you don't fully understand every nuance about sin or about even the deity of Christ or about the mechanics of the resurrection, and that this acknowledgement or confession of the mouth and belief of the heart leads you, friends, to love God and to obey him. So let me be clear. To say that confessing that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead does, of course, state some things that you must believe even if you don't fully understand them. You do need to acknowledge what I said a little bit earlier about your complete depravity, your total need for the sufficient grace and provision of God through Jesus Christ. But the concept of knowing God, particularly in the Hebrew with the word yada in the Old Testament, is not just about knowing sheer facts. It's not about getting an A on the, the quiz at the end of the doctrinal test, right? Uh, will you get into heaven? And that's what's confirmed in the New Testament as well. Your belief in God, your knowing that he is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, is grounded in relationship and love. The fact that your faith in God is grounded on his grace and the work that he did in Jesus Christ leads to the key points that Paul then makes in verses 11 through 13. Because there is no inherent worthiness that we bring to the table, since there is nothing that we do to earn our salvation, since everything depends upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, then as Paul says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction, he says, between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is good news. And it's here that Paul shifts into a new thought that will dominate the rest of this chapter. And then chapter 11, the question is asked in verse 14. How will they then call on him in whom they've not believed? And you can hear Paul's angst, can't you? This, as I've said, this letter is one of the unique letters and parts of the Bible in which everything so clearly builds upon itself. And we've already seen multiple times, even back in chapter 9 when he described his great sorrow, unceasing anguish over the fact that so many of his brothers and sisters in Israel were lost but it wasn't as if they were lacking anything. Remember what he said? They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and, and from their race according to the flesh is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. It is not as though the word of God has failed. So that can't be it. It's not a failure in the gospel. But that's why everyone needs to hear the gospel. As Paul writes in this passage, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? 
Right? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? It is only through your proclaiming of the gospel, which in this case does not mean a sermon. Don't get thrown by the word preach. It means you and me sharing the gospel message to the world. Only through the preaching of the gospel, the proclaiming of the good news, can faith come from hearing. And I like the imagery in verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's a quote from Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings the good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The one who brought good news was typically a runner who was sent after a battle to proclaim that the battle and the war sometimes was over. This is true not only of Israel, but of all the nations of that time, since there's no other way efficiently to communicate. There were no telegraphs or cell phones or any other types of things, but sending a person. For example, a few centuries earlier than Christ, there was a famous battle between the Persians and the Greeks at a city, Marathon. The Greeks defended against the Persians successfully. Persians besieged the city. Greeks won the battle. In order to communicate the message of victory and peace, they sent a runner named Pheidippides to Athens, a city 21 miles away. Now, the sight of a runner would cause everyone to pause. Was it good news or was it bad? Had the Persians taken Marathon and would they be on their way to Athens next? According to Herodotus, Pheidippides stood and cried out, Hail! We are the victors! That was a long way to go to give that message, right? Those are some beautiful feet that day because of the tidings they brought. Sadly, they were soon not very beautiful feet because the next thing that happened was that Phidippides died from the exertion. And in honor of his sacrifice, the Olympic Games hosted by Athens began to include the marathon run as an event and probably to train the runners to be able to run a little bit further. But take that imagery of the runner bringing news and imagine the siege that the enemy has been having on individuals and families, the dark shadow of hopelessness that hangs over all because of the impossibly strong enemies of death and sin holding everyone in bondage. And then, not unlike that image in uh, The Lord of the Rings, the light dawning on the side of the hill, right? Light dawns and a runner comes cresting over the hill. How beautiful are the feet that stand there and say, Hail, Christ is the victor. That is what is being talked about. But that's what you are. And if you think about the exertion of that runner from Marathon, if you think about what it takes, the the sacrifice of going out to deliver the message, the, the thought of hope and victory that you are communicating, the hopelessness of the people to whom you are delivering the message. That is what is being described here in Romans 10. 
But sadly, not everyone who hears that message. I mean, you would think that would be absolutely earth-shattering, wonderful news. But not everyone who hears the message accepts it. Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he's heard from us? Well, based upon the, what we read from the rest of that chapter, that's just the start of Isaiah 53. Some of you may know that's the chapter about the rejection of God's servant, the one who is bringing salvation, the one who was sent. And the answer is, inevitably, only a small number, only a remnant And Paul, in fact, quotes from Isaiah 53 in verse 17 here of Romans chapter 10. You can look at it there. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us. That's that quote from Isaiah 53.1. If you know the story of Isaiah, you know that God sent the prophet out to the people with the warning about sin and judgment, but he also told Isaiah ahead of time, nobody's going to listen. And that's how it will be sometimes with you. You have this fantastic message. You go through the sacrifice of being the runner, of delivering the message, standing up on the hillside with dawn shining behind you, with beautiful feet of those who bring good news, and none, perhaps a few, will listen. But that does not mean that the word of God has failed. Nor does it mean that you are to stop preaching the gospel, for faith comes from hearing. The Holy Spirit will use you. You must be faithful. And then the last verses of our passage are a little more difficult. Paul says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. That's, that's quoting a passage, but really referring to you, the messengers of the, of the gospel of peace. And that message has gone out to all the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask of me. But if Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So having just explained the vital importance of preaching the gospel, Paul asks probably the question you and I would ask. Did they hear it? Come on, did... Was it spoken clearly? Did they hear it? They've been waiting for this for generations. What do you mean they didn't believe it? Didn't they have the law that pointed to the need for a Savior? Didn't they have Jesus, the Word of God, actually come down? As we saw earlier in the chapter, to them in the Incarnation, didn't the apostles share the good news that he rose from the dead? Why would they not hear the report? Well, the most important and thorough answer that we put together from the first nine chapters of Romans is that in sin, every single person has suppressed the truth that is clearly evident in the creation around us, right? That was Romans chapter 1. 
We've also learned that those who reject the gospel, that Jesus is Lord and that he has risen from the dead, do so because they are ultimately not called by the Lord to salvation, meaning that God has not intervened specifically through his grace to break that stranglehold of sin in their hearts and minds. And so the Israelites had heard, but they had rejected the gospel. So why this quote from Moses saying, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation? Who's the one making jealous? Well, Moses is quoting God. So it is God who is making Israel jealous. And in this case, God said he would make them jealous when they saw that the other nations were blessed in turning to God. And in this case, you might think, for example, of Jonah. Remember Jonah sitting, even pouting on the hillside, looking at the repentance of Assyrian Nineveh? Watching the mercy of God? stewing over the fact that his own Israelite brothers are being judged for their sin, but here you've got these pagan Gentiles who not that long before have been invading their cities, killing their people. Similarly, in Paul's time, the Israelites have rejected the gospel and they're experiencing judgment by God as a result, but they were also growing jealous at seeing the mercies and blessings of God given to the Gentiles. And it's ironic, I think, that the very man who had been so vehemently and violently against Jesus and his followers, Saul of Tarsus, becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Unlike Jonah, at least we know, at least we, what we read, doesn't seem like he ever accepted fully God's mercy to the Gentiles. But this Pharisee of Pharisees had not only developed a love for the nations, but had given his life to them, was writing this letter of Romans to the church of Rome, of all places, right? The capital city of the empire that had subjugated Israel. It's like writing a letter to the church at Nineveh. Talk about something that would be infuriating to the, to the Israelites. And to add insult to injury, Paul concludes that Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. Think about those words for a second. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. It was bad enough that a Gentile nation like Assyria might cry out to God and receive mercy. But it was another thing. Are you kidding? That a Gentile nation doesn't even seek God? That they're out pursuing their idolatry and their own gods and sin and God goes to them? Don't fall into the temptation of thinking that God is playing with Israel or that he's being unfair in all of this. That's why Paul says of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God may have sought out a people that were not a people. He may have been merciful to call many Gentiles, but he never neglected Israel. Israel rejected God. The people heard, they did not listen. They saw, but they kept their eyes closed. 
So let's briefly review what we've learned. We are to believe that we cannot save ourselves, that God has given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. We don't have to understand exactly what it means to be the Lord through whom all things are sustained and all things exist, nor do we have to understand exactly what it means to be resurrected. But we must, at a minimum, believe these things. We must believe them strongly enough that in the fact of persecution and in the face of it, in difficult times, we are willing to still follow Jesus. And the foundation of that belief is not just a set of statements, checking the box, saying, I believe X, Y, and Z. But it is a relationship of love that results in fruit of obedience. And this belief does not come naturally. At least not with a heart in bondage to sin and death. God intervenes. He comes to a people that does not seek them. He gifts those people with eyes to see and ears to to hear. And you are commanded to go out and share that gospel. That Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit will work through that message. He will gift people with faith and salvation. He'll draw people to himself. But even though you will share that message with many, few will hear. They'll come up with nonsensical excuses for why what the world offers, what sin promises, is better than eternal life. But their excuses will not be because the gospel has failed or is inadequate. And so you have to remember that as you go into it and you continue to obey God and share the gospel. And in fact, sharing the gospel is one of the fruits of true belief. Now, all of that that I just described is a fulfillment of a parable that Jesus once told. And it's found in Luke 14. We read, when one of those who had reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to them, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at a time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First said, I have bought a field, must go and see it, please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said, go out to the highways. Go out to the hedges, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, we won't spend long on this, but I do want you to note a few things. First, notice in verse 15 how Jesus tells the parable to a man in response who had exclaimed, it's right at the beginning, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I didn't put the context there, but Jesus had just mentioned a moment before, according to the chapter earlier, the resurrection of the just. So everyone's thoughts at the table were upon eternal life in the kingdom of God. Spirits were high, and the guests around the table are envisioning being at this great banquet, banquet of the king, and Jesus' fellow guests have not been listening to him. 
Just a moment before, Jesus had spoken the parable that's recorded in the first half of Luke 14, which had been about how no one is worthy to be at God's banquet. Everyone is on equal footing. Just like we see Paul describing in the first part of of Romans here, the lesson they were to learn from that was, as Jesus told them, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. This is not about status. It's not about privilege. It's not about class. You should be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus had been just talking about those things, about kingdom attitudes, humility, and so on, and that's when one of the dinner guests proclaims, Blessed is everyone who's going to eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. And he, what he means by it is, blessed are all of us privileged guests. The ones who will be invited. And that's what prompts Jesus to tell that, this parable. Second, we hear about how this invitation went out and, you know, According to Middle Eastern custom, which still exists today in some areas, two invitations to a banquet are usually sent. The host sends a first invitation and waits to receive acceptances, and then depending on the number of acceptances, the host decides what type of animal to slaughter, whether it's going to be a few to be fed by a chicken, or you know, 10 to 15 would be a goat, 30 or more would be a calf. And those who had accepted the first invitation were duty-bound to show up. Why? Well, there's no refrigeration. If a, if a host goes to the extent of slaughtering an animal sufficient for all that came, you don't all refuse after having said you're going to be there. Well, in Jesus' parable, this banquet is called a great supper. That means a huge feast. meant to either celebrate a great event or... or to honor an important individual. Many people would have invited. Many would have accepted the invitation because they liked the sound of being invited to such an event. Of course I'll be there. This is like the gala event. And third, we won't go into the nature of these excuses, but I want you to note that these were from people who had made acceptances and then at the last moment, make the excuse. And verse 18 said that they all alike began to make excuses. All alike. The implication is all the acceptances became excuses. And of course, they're ridiculous, but think about what they represent. They represent a purposeful rejection. It had seemed at first a desirable thing to attend the event, but something made them to decide otherwise. And what is Jesus' point in all of that? How does that illustrate well Romans 10? There are many who say that they're coming to the Great Supper. Many who want to be at the gala event. They want to be at the Great Supper of the King. They think they belong there. Many who talk about the benefits of heaven, about eating bread in the kingdom. But then when time comes for the feast and what it takes to actually be a part of the feast, well, expectations, the cost of being here are a little bit more than I want to pay. 
I'm far more focused on earthly, self-centered things. And that's the heart of why Israel rejected the gospel. Why the people you preach the good news to will reject your words. Receiving the kingdom means rejecting everything else that competes with it. Those who wish to enjoy the great feast, marriage supper of the Lamb, must come in and enjoy it. They can't order it to go. You don't order to go the marriage supper of the Lamb and eat it while you busy yourself with your own activities and idols. God requires your worship, your obedience, your everything. And so you notice the host's response starting in verse 21. He's angry as you might expect, but his action is not vengeance. Rather, he sends the servant back out to bring in the outcasts. Those who normally wouldn't be invited to such a banquet. And what a fitting conclusion to what Jesus has said earlier at the meal when he encouraged the people as hosts in the earlier parable to go out and invite those who can't repay your kindness, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Symbolically, they were the sinful from among the Jews. People who weren't all caught up in their self-righteousness. And the master invites even those who are outside the city, those found in the hedges and highways. And notice one final thing. Again, don't have time to elaborate on this morning because it goes back to points we talked about a few weeks ago when we covered Romans 9, but these guests are compelled to come in. In Matthew's parallel passage, in Matthew 22, Jesus ends the parable with this saying. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. So God's call goes out to many, all men and women. Most in their sin reject that invitation. Just as Paul said all day long, been holding out my hands to a contrary and disobedient people. But in his good purpose, he compels some to come to the banquet. Some among the outcast. Those convicted over sin through the grace of his spirit. Those in the highways and the hedges, the Gentiles, didn't even seek him. And that's what Paul is trying to say. We are those who are in the highways and the hedges, and the master has invited us. Will you attend the feast? Will you heed the call and believe the message? Is the runner the one whose beautiful feet has crested that hill with the good news of salvation? Is that good news to you? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead? Will you confess that with your mouth and believe that in your heart? Then, my friend, you will be saved. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that... You are a gracious master who sends out your servant to bring in the outcast, to bring in those who are outside the city. Lord God, thank you that you have worked in our hearts, not because of anything in us, but because of your gracious mercy. You've worked in our hearts to hear your message to treat it as good news, to delight in the message of victory of your son, 
to believe that he is Lord and that you have raised him from the dead. And Lord, I, I pray that we would have that same anguish that Paul has, concern for his brethren, that they have heard the gospel, first that they would hear it, period, but then once they have heard that they have not believed. And Lord, help us to trust in you, to to know that you're using us as instruments of the gospel, to preach the good news, but to, to know that ultimately you bring the harvest. Lord, thank you that we one day will sit at the great banquet Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Thank you for adopting us, calling us as your own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.